Hey, Billy the Kid fans, freaks, and friends. It's me, Michael Anthony Judasissi, and as promised, we're here with the final installment of my new Back to Billy audiobook, chapters 61 through 79, all the way to the kind of incredible ending. Well, where are we with chapter 61? I'm catching up. I have the book in my hands right here. Um, Martin is about to head off to New Mexico again. If you haven't listened to this point, I'm not going to uh, uh, spoil things for you about how or why he's getting there, but he's on his way and uh, he hopes to he hopes to close the loop with Rosita and Billy, but he has a chance encounter in the airport in Newark, New Jersey with none other than, well, you'll have to listen to find out. And things are about to get really mean, really ugly, really nasty, and really confusing. So I have uh, so appreciated you going on this journey with me. I hope you've enjoyed the book. If you have, it's two things. you can, Well, you can do one thing that'll do two things. The first thing is you can hear the rest of the story because there's way, way more than this, um, by going to mankindpro, mankindpro.com and uh, ordering the, the other books in the series. And you can also really help support my work. And I, I appreciate that, right? The more books I sell, the more time I have to be able to create new films and podcasts and books. So uh, the this is the only book available in audiobook format currently. If it's a huge hit when it goes on Audible, maybe there'll be another one. I don't know. Um, but there's so much more to Martin's story when you get past the words, the end in this book. And you'll probably be wondering, what happened to this person? What happened to that person? How did this happen? Well, all the answers are out there. Book number two in the series is 1877. Takes place a year later than you're listening to right now in Martin's life, but somehow it takes place earlier in the past. So it's a prequel sequel. In any event, that's enough talk for me. I uh, hope you have enjoyed Back to Billy. Let's buckle up because it's going to get nasty. There's going to be surprises and there's going to be things that you are going to want to have no part of, but you're going to have to listen. Let's go one more time. Back to Billy. Chapter 61. Monday dawned bright and clear as Martin found his place in the very short boarding line for the business class section of the plane. As he stood daydreaming about life with Rosita, now that the war was over, his peace was interrupted by a harsh, familiar voice. What's up, lollipop, snickered Farber, delighted at seeing the discomfort on Martin's face. No, you again, implored Teebs, his anger and resentment rising like a bile in his throat. What's the problem, dipstick? I've got more work to do back there, offered Farber. Teebs couldn't believe his bad luck. Teachers had all summer off, so Farber could come and go as he pleased, or at least as much as his meager travel budget would allow. Martin was disgusted, but getting into another airport argument with this loser wasn't going to help anything. He decided to play down to the man. Have fun, stay away from my friends, and stay out of my way, he said firmly. You're giving me orders, asked the incredulous Farber, having opened up a side of Teebs he'd yet to see. That's rich. Farber snickered, but seethed inside. Teebs, looking at Farber's threadbare tennis shoes, couldn't resist the urge to pile on. Oh, and this is business class. Steerage, he said, waving his hand dismissively toward the end of the line, is somewhere back there. 
Farber's face turned as dark as the sky during a New Jersey thunderstorm, but he couldn't find the words to counteract the truth. He simply sneered at Teebs and trudged off to join the rest of the commoners, who'd all arrive in Albuquerque at exactly the same time anyway. Chapter 62 With four days of sales and the Murphy account all sorted behind him, Martin jetted back to the land of enchantment on Thursday night. He was tempted to point his rental car south at that very moment and make the three-hour drive to Lincoln. It had been a long day, however, and it was almost 9 p.m. He doubted he'd want to interrupt whatever Darlene and Dallas were doing at midnight anyway. After a restless night of sleep, he made the drive south and east through the Valley of Fires and arrived at his new home on schedule. The morning mountain air was cool and comforting. Even being among the historically preserved Lincoln of 2020, Martin felt a deep connection with the town. Intrinsically, he knew he had even more of a history here than his brief time travels had revealed. He sometimes seemed to see the town, as it was in the 1800s, even in present day. He found himself becoming his own self-guided tour operator, telling himself the many arcane points of interest that used to exist as he strolled along US 380. After checking into his casita, he changed into his old clothes and walked out past the main Patron house. Dallas and Darlene spied him and gave each other a look of concern, as if their friend and guest might just have lost his mind. They ambled outside to greet him before he went off to do whatever he did all day while in Lincoln. Hey, big boy, said Darlene as she reached out to give him one of her famous hugs. Martin leaned in sideways so as not to touch any of his private bits to hers in front of her husband. Dallas clapped him mightily on the back and massaged Martin's neck with his thick fingers. Good to see you again, buddy, beamed Dallas with his megawatt smile. The three made some small talk while Martin looked for any escape from the conversation. He had only two days and he needed to find 1878 and needed to find Rosita. After their standard talk about Martin's new job and why Lily wasn't with him, and how he should definitely attend Darlene's new erotic massage class later that day, Martin bid his hosts a farewell and walked toward the street. Just before he was out of earshot, Dallas called back, Hey, Martin, here, take one of these, as he handed off a cigar wrapped in both pink and blue bands. Examining the strange gift, being that he didn't even smoke, Martin asked, What's this for? Dallas smiled his confident, devil-may-care smile and replied, Oh, nothing. Enjoy, Martin, and strode out of sight. Martin pocketed the gift and quickly forgot about it, as he was ready to attend to more important matters. His mind was in such a peaceful state, it took him just moments to reach the main road and to be firmly back in the grasp of 1878. With chickens clucking, donkeys braying, and people talking as if they hadn't a care in the world, he felt like he might just have landed in Nirvana. The Lincoln County War was over. History told him that. Martin knew the killing wasn't over, however, and that thought kept him on guard. In all of his research into Billy's life in the war, he never happened upon a Martin Teebs, Carl Farber, or mention of anyone time-traveling into and out of Lincoln. While Martin reasoned that the events he was experiencing were actually happening, they didn't seem to be reflected in the historical record at least not yet. Making a beeline to Rosita's house, he knocked on the door to no avail. Thinking his love was perhaps at the store, he walked farther west down the main street. As he passed a small space between Reverend Ely's home and the saloon, he heard a gruff voice speak out. 
Hands up, you damn regulator. Unarmed, Martin had no choice but to throw up his hands, and as he did, the dark alley erupted in laughter. Ha 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 I'm wondering if you messed your drawers, boomed Big Jim French. Jose Chavez y Chavez joined the chorus of laughter as Teebs allowed an embarrassed smile to spread across his face. Hey guys, good to see you. What are you doing here? asked Teebs warmly. The two men looked at each other for a moment before speaking, understanding the big man had no idea what had happened since they last saw him in the hills above San Patricio. Chavez slowly offered, It's Pepin. He's got Billy. Arrested him and holding him at the house. What? exclaimed Teebs, knowing full well that Billy's confinement at the house at L.G. Murphy shouldn't be for another three years. Yeah, said French. He picked him up a few days ago. Enraged that his friend was under lock and key and probably being mistreated, Teams thundered, Let's go get him out. Where's Doc, anyway? Again, Chavez and French exchanged worried glances before Chavez answered, He's gone. Lit out for Texas. What? Why? implored Teebs. French answered, said he was going to have to kill again or get killed. Tried to convince Billy to go with him, too. Teebs knew how headstrong Billy was and could only imagine how quickly he would have dismissed Doc's invitation. Billy wouldn't go, said Chavez, pulling himself up short of saying what was on his mind. Why not? questioned Teebs. Chavez hesitated as if he didn't know whether to answer the question, but finally did. Said he didn't want to leave his best friend. And then after a long pause, he added, He said he didn't want to leave you, Martin. If the whole of the Capitan Mountains had fallen on Martin at that moment, he couldn't have been any more crushed. Billy was in jail, fighting for his life, because of him, a man who should never, ever have been in Lincoln. Teebs quickly understood that history was changing, and there was no guarantee that Billy would escape alive this time. Okay, guys, we need to get him out before something happens, said Teebs hurriedly, wondering where he might find his guns. Easy now, Teebs. We got us a spy in there. And ain't she coming back right now, said French, as they all looked up the street to see the lovely Rosita Luna coming. With her head and body wrapped in a colorful scarf, Rosita was as incognito as the most beautiful woman in Lincoln could be. Seeing Martin as she turned into the alley, her face was alight with excitement as she jumped into his arms. Martine, mi amor, she said as she plastered his face with kisses. Martin swung her in a circle, pressing her body to his in a connection he'd hoped he'd never lose again. Oh yeah, Teebsy, I guess congratulations are in order, boomed Chavez to an obviously confused Teebs. Putting Rosita down, she stepped back to remove the shawl and exposed the very beginnings of her pregnant belly. Oh my God, exclaimed Teebs. Are, are you, is that, he said, pointing to her slightly rounded stomach. See, Martine, Rosita beamed. It is our baby. Time played heavily in Martin's head. He had just been here two weeks ago in real time. How long had it been for Rosita? A month? Three months? Martin smiled broadly and gave her a gentle but firm bear hug before French cut the impromptu baby shower short. What'd you see, Rosita? Can we get him out? No. Chivito is chained to the floor. They watch him every minute. He has two guards and Billy is never alone. They search me before I go in and they watch me the whole time, she said sadly. All four looked at each other helplessly for a moment before an idea took shape in Martin's head. He was channeling either William Shatner or Chris Farley channeling William Shatner as he found himself blurting out, I've got a plan.
Chapter 63 Martin and Rosita stood in the trees just behind the house. Martin's plan, as it were, was stolen from history. He'd hide a gun in the outhouse. Once it was hidden, Billy would get the signal from a visitor to ask to relieve himself, where he could retrieve the gun. Martin knew he was aiding and abetting the murder of potentially two lawmen, but he reasoned that since history was out of order, maybe Billy could just get the drop on them and they'd surrender. Fat chance, he said mostly to himself. Que? Martin? Who is fat? asked Rosita innocently. Martin looked at the flawless brown skin, the shining dark hair, the sparkling eyes, and wondered how this amazing creature had fallen for the likes of him. The pregnancy had somehow made her look more beautiful, more radiant. If he had a million chances in modern day to woo someone like Rosita, he'd strike out a million and one times. Her love for him seemed so real, so solid, that it reflected the vows that were often spoken but rarely honored in modern day, till death do us part. He fiercely wanted to protect her, which snapped him back to reality. Listen, Rosita, I want you to get out of here. Go home, please. Lock the door and don't open it for anyone but me. See, si, Martine, but you'll be careful, yes? Our little baby needs its daddy, she said lovingly, smiling the entire time. I'll be careful. I promise, he said, and with a passionate kiss, he dismissed her. Martin crept up to the outhouse, swinging the door just enough to get inside. The smell in the late summer heat was overpowering. Fighting his gag reflex, Martin looked for a suitable place to hide the 1873 Colt Army revolver French had given him. The gun was loaded with six full rounds, not five as most cowboys normally did. With no safety, a revolver with a live round under the hammer could fire if its owner fell from his horse or tripped down a step and fell forward in time, as it were. French reasoned that Billy might need all six shots to make a clean break from his guard. As Martin looked around the wall boards and around the seat, he heard the squeak of the back door of the big store opening. No, Billy, not yet, he exclaimed under his breath, his job not yet done. Martin peered through the boards to an even worse sight than he imagined. Deputy Bob Ollinger was making his way to the outhouse, alone. No one had given Billy the signal because Martin hadn't finished hiding the gun. It was just bad luck that Ollinger's bowels decided that at that moment they should be evacuated. Ollinger was a loyal man to the house. In time, he would become a deputy sheriff of Lincoln County under Pat Garrett and even earn a commission as a deputy U.S. Marshal. A big, broad man with an even larger ego, Ollinger wasn't even liked all that well among his friends, much less the regulators. His sour temperament made him an ideal choice to guard the boy that Pepin had taken to calling the scourge of Lincoln County. Oh, shit. What do I do? What do I do? Martin said to himself. He was left with only two real choices. First, he could kill Ollinger himself when he opened the door. That, of course, would prompt the other guard and Pepin's deputies to rain hell on him. He doubted he'd survive an outhouse shootout, vaguely recalling the scene in Young Guns when Buckshot Roberts met his untimely end in the same stinky manner. Martin's other option was in some ways worse, but at least he might live. With Ollinger quickly approaching the door, Martin made his decision and slipped down into the hole. He quickly vomited as quietly as he could and hoped that perhaps Ollinger might only have to piss. That hope was dashed as the large deputy closed the door behind him and farted very loudly. Ollinger slipped down his pants and drawers and began to sit. Martin's world went literally and figuratively dark as the last vestiges of light were sealed out by the ample ass of one Robert Ollinger. Martin held his breath, 
covered his eyes and mouth with his hands as the remnants of whatever vile stew Ollinger had for dinner the previous night rained down on him in wet, foul, dripping chunks. Chapter 64 Finally spying the coast being clear, Martin Teebs, covered in the excrement of everyone on the west side of Lincoln, exited the outhouse with great haste. He ran quickly to the trees and stripped off all of his clothing save for his underwear. Vomiting two more times and moving faster than most big men could, he sprinted across the main street and launched himself into the trickle of water that was the Bonito Creek. Martin rolled around in the cool mountain creek trying to wash the waste off of himself. Finally, when he felt he could do no better, he crept along the tree line to where Rosita's house was and firmly knocked on the door. Rosita, Rosita, open up, it's me, he whisper yelled to her. Peering from the window, Rosita quickly unlatched the door and beheld the sight before her. Martine, what happened, she said, just as a westerly breeze blew Martin's aroma towards her. Oh, Martin, you stink. Come now, have a bath, she said gently. Embarrassed at having his woman see him and smell him this way, Martin had no choice but to follow as Rosita stoked a fire to heat up some bath water. An hour later, freshly bathed and scrubbed, Martin and Rosita lay in bed. As Martin spooned the young woman, he ran his hand lightly over her belly. Rosita threw her head back and let her hair softly cascade across Martin's face. A baby. I can't believe it, Rosita. He's going to be perfect, gushed Martin as his hand rubbed warmth into her belly. He? she exclaimed. How could you know, Martin? It could be a girl. Martin, realizing he had given up a historical secret, quickly backtracked. Yes, that's what I meant. He or she will be perfect, he said as Rosita pressed her back into him. The sublime happiness and simplicity of his life in Lincoln permeated Martin's mind and his soul. He'd long since decided if he could stay here, he would. Lily had the house, the bank accounts, the life insurance. She was beautiful in her own way, too. And after mourning Martin for many, many months, or so he hoped, she'd meet someone new and have a nice life. His life now was with Rosita and with his son. That lonely picture he saw months ago at the Patron house haunted him. There sat Rosita, Martin Jr., in her arms. Her eyes were vacant and hollow, as only a woman who has been abandoned can have. The fact that the picture even existed bothered Martin, and he vowed to erase it and any memories of it in the here and now of Lincoln, New Mexico, 1878. I'm so happy, Rosita, so happy to be here with you, said Martin before adding truthfully, I've never been this happy in my entire life. Rosita's warm skin pressed into him, and her gauzy linen blouse stretched to contain her growing breasts. She rolled over to face her lover, stared him directly in the eye, and said, Martine, never leave me again. Por favor, the baby and I need you. Martin cupped her face and looked into her shining eyes before speaking, Never again. Never again, my love. A smile spread across Rosita's face as she pushed Martin flat on the bed. Swinging her legs over him, she straddled a big man that she would now build a life with. Without a shred of guilt, Martin needed no more prompting as he eagerly made love to the woman he had already made a mother and hoped soon to make his wife. Chapter 65 The quiet of the bedroom was only broken by the occasional horse and wagon heading down the main road. Martin had completely allowed his mind and body to accept that he was never leaving Lincoln. With Rosita lying next to him, he felt as complete and as at home as he ever had. This 
This was the life he deserved to live. A powerful hunger began to rumble in his belly, and he sat up with a start. How about I make you breakfast, he asked of the lovely young woman. Rosita made a curious smile, aided by her head cocked to the side. Where do you come from, Martin Teebs, that a man cooks for his woman? Where is such a place, she teased. For a nanosecond, Martin considered telling her the truth, coming clean on who he was and where he was really from. He imagined that by shedding his secret, he might shed his life in the 21st century. It was clear that Rosita already knew something was up. That day when he tripped on her front porch and disappeared must surely be burned into her memory. I mean, thought Martin, what kind of person just ups and vanishes into thin air? Perhaps Rosita would understand. She'd see the sacrifices he was making to spend his life with her. He could tell her about their son and his future. He could tell her everything. Then he saw himself being hauled off to some sanitarium in the middle of the desert and thought the better of it. Instead, he just smiled back at her. Now go, please, get some water from the well, and I shall make you desayuno, announced Rosita, her naked body rising strongly from the bed, temporarily taking away Martin's ability to breathe. Martin began to get dressed in whatever he could scrounge together from a trunk in Rosita's room. She said the clothes had belonged to her father, and by their age, Martin didn't question it. He strapped on his gun belt, just in case, and grabbed a bucket to fill with water. Martin, to the store, por favor, for some butter for the galletas? Rosita asked with a warm smile. Martin had no idea what desayuno or galletas was, but he was pretty sure it was going to be good. At minimum, Rosita had asked for butter in English, and he suspected he might be able to get some at the old Tunstall store a few doors down. Giving Rosita a kiss on the cheek, he left the house humming an Aerosmith tune, Walk This Way. Martin had to admit, he felt at that moment like the King of Lincoln. For once, he felt like his life was following a road map. It was as if he actually knew what he was doing, and the feeling enthralled him. Stopping outside the former Tunstall store, he began to pump some water from the well into the metal bucket. Suddenly, the piece of Lincoln was shattered by the sound of rounds being fired. There was a great yelling and screaming, and Teebs was sure he heard the blast of a shotgun as well. A shrill voice in the distance cackled, Hello, Bob! And Martin realized that Billy was making his famous escape. Suddenly, from behind him, he heard a voice. You! spat Farber, looking upon his rival. Teeb's eyes narrowed and his right fist clenched. What are you doing here, he said accusingly at Farber. Me? You're the one that doesn't belong here, white boy, Farber shot back. While Teeb's processed the insult, Farber reloaded. You hear that shooting? That's your doing. Those deputies' blood is on your hands. Teeb's had heard enough, finally exploding. Get the hell away from me and get the hell out of here or you're next. Farber grimaced at the big man before warning him. Listen, friend, you'd better. Teebs let him go no further and shot back. I'm not your friend, asshole. Farber took only a moment to think before responding, and I'm not yours. And with that, he drew his gun and fired. The bullet shot wildly to the side of Teebs' head as the bucket crashed to the ground. In return, Martin drew his gun and fired, hitting Farber in his right arm. That hurts, wailed Farber as he grasped at the wound. His eyes having gone crazy like a wounded animal, Farber lunged at the bucket and swung it at Teeb's head, barely missing. Martin, gun still drawn, pondered whether to fire again and kill the man when the bucket came whizzing at his head once again, connecting firmly on his forehead. Farber dropped the dented bucket and ran into the trees near the creek. 
Martin's world began to turn black as he fell in the center of the street. Gunshots rang out, and the sound of men running pulsated in his brain. He desperately tried to remain conscious, but the lights were quickly going out. He hit the ground hard, and a puff of dirt rose from the road, and all that was earthly of Martin Teeb simply vanished into the thin mountain air. Billy and French ran by, just in time to see the spectacle. "'What the hell?' yelled Billy, confused. "'Where in the hell did he go?' French replied, in all my years, I ain't never seen nothing like that. That's some kind of dark magic, Billy. With no time to waste and Pepin's men chasing them, Billy and French ran toward the livery stable where they hoped to hell that Chavez was waiting with their mounts. Hearing the commotion, Rosina Luna had come from her house at the last moment and saw the father of her child simply vanish before her eyes. She ran to the spot, screaming his name, dropping to her knees and wailing for him, begging that he come back but to no avail. No one remembers how long she cried in the street, but when some well-meaning friends guided her back to the house, all that was left lying in the street was a dented metal bucket. Chapter 66 Later that evening, as Rosita sat sadly and quietly in the darkened room, only illuminated by a candle, there was a soft knock on her door. Rosita, it's me. Let me in, the voice whispered urgently. Knowing that Martin would keep his promise to never leave her, she leapt from her chair, shouting his name, Martin! Lifting the bar that locked the door, she peeked out, hoping to see the only man she'd ever loved, yet was met by the vision of one of the few that she ever truly hated, Carl Farber. Puerco, she shouted as she slammed the door closed. Just as the bar was about to slip back into position, Farber leaned his good shoulder into it, pushing Rosita back violently. Farber stood menacingly in the doorframe as she regained her balance. Rosita looked wildly around the room, spying Martin's Winchester. She lunged for the rifle at the same time Farber did. Grabbing the barrel, he wrestled it away from her, levering the rifle enough times to clear every round. Tossing the rifle on the chair, he spoke, Let's not do this. You wouldn't want to spoil our good time before it even got started, would you? Rosita, full of sadness for Martin and anger at Farber, spat at his shoes and hissed, I'd rather be dead, with a look of defiance with her eyes. Farber wasn't about to be intimidated by a 24-year-old Mexican girl and coolly replied in a lowing, threatening voice, Either way, your choice. In the flickering candlelight, Rosita finally spied the bloody bandage tied around Farber's right arm. Sensing this might be her last chance, she lunged at the schoolteacher and dug her fingers into the wound. Farber howled in pain before turning and backhanding her across her face. She refused to go down, however, standing there with a trickle of blood running down from the corners of her mouth. Still in the throes of pain from his bullet wound, Farber laid out the terms of his conquest to the young beauty. This is happening, he said. It can go hard, or you can just lay back and enjoy it. I strongly suggest that you enjoy it. For the first time, fear entered Rosita's eyes and Farber knew he'd won. He pushed Rosita down on the floor hard and stood over her, undoing his pants with his good hand. Somewhere deep in her mind, Rosita silently screamed for Martin to arrive and save her, but her call went unheeded. She began to thrash and scream as Farber yanked her knees apart and kneeled between them. With his left hand, he tore the muslin blouse from her breast and then pulled her skirt down. Rosita fought for herself, her baby, her lover Martin with all she was worth, clawing her fingers deeply into his neck. But in the end, Carl Farber could not be stopped. 
he committed the most vile, atrocious act a man can perpetrate on a woman to the chorus of her screams, sobs, and constant calling for her lover. Martine, Martine, Martine. Chapter 67 Two weeks later, Martin Tebbs sat on his very sensible couch, bored and distracted. Since returning from New Mexico, he'd been withdrawn and sullen, and Lily could not figure out why. Sitting there with his laptop, he pecked away at the keys, occasionally hitting enter to search for some new bit of arcane knowledge about the Lincoln County War. While Mr. Talbot had been happy with Martin's work, he so far had not directed his new salesman to head out west again. Martin, for his part, wasn't sure he wanted to go anywhere near Lincoln anyway. He still bore the thick scab on his forehead where Farber had whacked him back to the present. Telling Lily he hit his head while entering the plane, he sighed in relief when she actually believed him. In those final moments with Rosita and after, Lincoln had become too real for Martin. He was going to be a father. His friend shot his way out of jail with a gun that Martin himself provided, murdering two deputies along the way. If he were to go back, he'd have to somehow take Rosita and leave Lincoln, as he was surely a wanted man. How would he provide for his wife and child in the Old West? Were there any advertising sales jobs he could apply for? Would he have to follow in Billy's footsteps and steal and gamble to make a living? Could he move them east and learn to become a farmer? The questions were many, and the answers were few. Martin's mood darkened as he realized that he'd passed the point of no return and could never ever returned to Lincoln, New Mexico in 1878. Hey, babe, called Lily, sneaking up behind him, which temporarily shocked Martin out of his funk. Oh, hey, Lily, he meekly offered in return. Lily had sensed that Martin was different after the last trip. She didn't know what happened, but reasoned that something must have happened to turn his normally happy self into the gloomy couch dweller she saw before him. Want to go out? Maybe get a beer or something? she asked in the most chipper voice she could manage. Uh, to where, he asked warily. Hmm, hey, how about that new Irish bar, Dolan's? I hear they've got some great beers. It'll be fun, proposed Lily. Martin shook his head and sighed to himself, as if he'd ever be caught dead in a place called Dolan's. Well, you've got to do something, Martin. You're starting to become one with this couch, lamented his concerned wife. I know, Lil, Martin replied. But I'm just in a funk. I guess I just need a hobby or something. Lily, with a concerned look, inspected her husband, trying to figure out a way to help him. Why not call Colin? You like him, right? She asked. Oh, yeah. Well, Colin is a new girlfriend, and he's no longer available to do anything except talk about how hot she is, offered Martin, shooting down another of Lily's grand ideas. Martin's fingers typed Lincoln County War once again into the search engine, hoping that maybe he'd be directed to some portal that would explain his recent experience in this life and his past one. Nothing new seemed to appear until he clicked on page two and saw an ad under the events tab. Martin's eyes lit up as he scoured the ad. Lincoln County War Reenactors Group Forming. Historians, Old West Buffs, and anyone who wants to have an old-fashioned good time are encouraged to apply. Organizational meeting, Saturday, September 19th, 2020, Glenrock, New Jersey, 1 p.m., all are welcome. Martin was stunned. A reenactors group right here in Bergen County? What were the chances? His mind was alight, wondering who would have enough interest in the kid and the war to join the group. 
He reasoned it wasn't going to be like really being in Lincoln, but at least it would let him scratch the itch. After all, who knew more about Billy the Kid and the war than he did? Suddenly energized, Martin checked his watch, 12.15 p.m. He had just enough time to eat a couple slices of cold pizza and head to the meeting. Hey, Lil, I'm going to go to this history thing in Glenrock today, okay? Happy that he was going to give the couch a chance to pop back to shape after weeks of being molded to his ass, Lily quickly agreed. She hadn't seen Martin this excited in weeks, and if some boring history lecture was going to put some pep in his step, who was she to tell him not to go for it? Chapter 68 Martin slowly opened the door to Suite B-12 at the mostly abandoned strip mall. Peering inside, he saw a number of folding chairs, a couple of tables, and not a living soul in the sterile, vacant storefront. Checking his watch, he noticed that in his excitement, he was at least ten minutes early. One of the tables had stacks of paper, a few pens, and seemingly nothing else. Martin slowly stepped in, wondering if he was actually in the right place. The sound of a toilet flushing caught his attention as the squeak of a door drew his eyes to an area behind the main table. Out walked none other than the absolute last person Martin wanted to see, Carl Farber. Farber was dressed in his usual ratty khakis and a plaid shirt. His right arm was up in a sling and he winced slightly, either at the sight of Martin or at the bullet hole that Martin had put in his arm. Oh God, you? Martin's disdain and disappointment was clear upon seeing the man. I should have known. I'm out of here. Martin hurriedly turned to leave when Farber broke the silence. Hey, Martin, wait, wait, please? The almost normal tone of Farber's voice and the lack of his juvenile name-calling caught Martin off guard, so he stopped and turned to face the man. What? he said plainly. Don't go so quick, okay? asked Farber. Look, that was bad. Really bad back in Lincoln. It just got too real, you know? I'm sorry about it all. An apology? From Farber? Martin was stunned by the gesture as he gently touched the scab on his forehead and did indeed know that it got too real. Farber continued, I can't go back. It was just too much, but I miss it, man. I wanted something to give me that feeling, but without this feeling. Farber, smiling, held up his arm that still bore the bullet wound that Martin had so deftly given him. The smile disarmed Martin a bit. I know what you mean, I guess, he said. I can't keep coming home with this either, he said while pointing to the ugly gash on his head. Farber smiled warmly at his rival before speaking. Listen, Martin... Help me. Stay here and run this thing. After all, who knows more about the Lincoln County War than us? Farber gave a knowing smile and Martin could only nod his assent. He thought for a few moments about it. Who could ever understand what had happened to him more than Farber? While he certainly didn't like the man, he didn't hate this new improved Farber as much as he did the old one. He could try it out for a few weeks and see if it did indeed scratch the itch. Against his better judgment, Martin found himself saying, Sure. I'll give it a try, why not, before he could stop himself. Farber seemed delighted with the answer and pulled up a chair for Martin behind the main table. As Martin sat down, he caught a glimpse of Farber's neck, replete with a handful of deep scratches in it. Damn, what happened to you? Do you have a cat or a lion or something? asked Martin. Forgetting about the scratches, Farber shot his hand to his neck, but coolly replied, <laughs> No, Beetlejuice, rough sex, you should try it. Martin gave an audible ugh at the emergence of the old Farber, but sat down as a few people gathered outside the storefront, 
ready to take their own trip back in time. Chapter 69 So, said Farber, who is it that you portray? Martin waited patiently while staring at the aged, tiny Asian man. Try as he might, he couldn't remember a single Asian in the history of Lincoln County. I beery, said the elderly man in an Asian accent as thick as Texas toast. I beery the kid. You make me beery. I be very good beery. Farber stifled a laugh by coughing into his hand and turned to Martin. Well, this is kind of your area of expertise. What do you think? In a flashback moment, Martin remembered his first time back in 1878 and how the regulators seemed to regale and teasing him about his looks and his clothes. He vowed silently to himself that anyone who wanted to be part of this reenactor group would do so without being teased. Hey, you look like a great Billy to me. Welcome to the group, kid, Martin said as the tiny man happily walked off to find a seat. Farber smiled with a slight laugh as a very large black man moved down the line in front of them. He had to be six foot five and 275 pounds. Almost afraid to ask, Martin was the first to speak. So who are you interested in portraying? In a screechy voice mimicking a line from the Young Guns 2 movie, he responded, I'm Doc. I'm a school teacher from the city of New York. Martin snapped his head toward Farber, who had to turn all the way around to avoid laughing in the new Doc's face. With a frown at his old rival slash new friend, Martin decided to make the call on his own. He stuck out his hand warmly and said, Welcome to the regulators, Doc. The big man beamed with pride at being accepted and danced off to meet the new Billy so as to plan their conquest of the house of Murphy and Dolan. Wow, said Farber. This is a trip. I wasn't sure what to expect, but it sure wasn't this. Hey, at least people are interested, reasoned Martin and it'll be good to be around people who like the stuff we like. Farber shrugged his shoulders hard enough to cause a searing pain from his bullet wound. As he scrunched up his face waiting for the pain to pass, a five-foot-tall bald man, who was just about five foot around, ambled up in front of the two organizers. He was wearing period clothes with a black overcoat, dark hat, a fancy silver vest, and a Sam Colt forty-five on his right hip. Howdy, gents, announced the fat man. Well, hello there, cowboy, offered Farber in his classic mocking tone. Who are you? The fat man looked at them with his sweaty, oily scalp and his belly doing its damnedest to break through the last good button his pants had and said, Why, I'm Sheriff Pat Garrett, of course. This was too much for Farber to contain, and he swung around in his chair, sneezing his laughs into the wall behind him and punching Martin in the ribs at the same time. Straight-faced, Martin replied, Pat Garrett, huh? Before the fat man could answer, Farber leaned into Martin and whispered into his ear, More like Fat Garrett. Farber descended into another round of laugh coughing while Martin shot him a disapproving look. Growing impatient with the two men, the sheriff spoke again. Yeah, they called him, I mean, they called me Juan Largo because we we're so tall. Did pretty good with the ladies too, said Garrett with a confident smile. This was all way too much for Farber, who without a word got up and walked away rather than risk a confrontation with the good sheriff. Getting Martin's nod of approval, the new sheriff moved on down the line to confront Billy and Doc while Farber collapsed in laughter into the chair next to Teebs. Come on, man. Are you going to take this seriously? Martin admonished Farber. With a huge sigh, Farber rolled his head and his eyes and responded, Yes, 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 yes. Let's move on. 
Both men looked up just in time to have their veins immediately turned to ice water as the color drained out of both of their faces for very different reasons. There before them, in skin-tight jeans, a form-fitting crop top, heels, full makeup, and the latest Rodeo Drive hairstyle was none other than Lincoln's Belle, Rosita Luna. Chapter 70 Rosita! The word escaped Martin's lips without a chance to even hold it back. His eyes wide in amazement, the blood began flowing in every extremity in his body. Farber had a different reaction, as if the past had seemingly come to pay him his just rewards. However, no look on the lovely woman's face betrayed that she knew either man. I'm sorry, she said. Did you call me Rosita? My name's Karen. Um, no, apologize, Martin. It's just that, and I'm kind of an expert on this, you look exactly like the Belle of Lincoln, Rosita Luna. Is that who you want to portray, he asked, hopefully? Farber was still lost in his panic that this might actually be Rosita coming from beyond the grave to spill his terrible secret. He glanced up at the woman again, but she left no clues that she recognized him. No, 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 she replied, laughing a bit more with each word. You think this? Me? Her smile enveloped her entire face, much the way the real Rosita's did, and Martin marveled at the comparison. Oh, God, no, she finished. I brought my auntie here. With that, she stepped aside and allowed her Aunt Rose to step forward. Martin and Farber exchanged quick side-eye glances and tapped nervously on the table. The woman, who might have been attractive many years and many pounds ago, was stuffed into a leopard print dress that was at least two sizes too small. Her sagging breasts threatened escape every time she moved, and her hips followed suit. She was a glowing orange color, as if she'd spent either too much time in the sun or not enough money on tanning lotion. Her hair, whatever color it was now, was baked, fried, and ironed into a crispy hairdo that was held together with what had to be at least half a can of hairspray. When her bright red lips spoke, it was with the thick accent of someone who'd never seen Mexico, but probably lived in the South Bronx for much of her life. I'm Rosita Luna, baby, she purred. Wish one of you boys is want to win the Bell of Lincoln's heart. She rested her hand firmly on one of her wide hips, waiting for a reply. It was a dead silence coming from the table before Farber, unable to control himself any longer, whispered into Martin's ear, Two pounds of sausage in a one-pound pack. You win, amigo. Rosita is all yours. Farber quickly made his way toward the others, leaving Martin to rekindle his romance with his dream girl. Martin could only look up and give a tight little smile to the new Rosita as she swayed her ample hips and batted her long, fake eyelashes at him. Chapter 71 Two hours later, with Martin riding herd on the new crop of regulators and townspeople, Farber made his way back to the table to begin packing up. After a few moments, he sensed the approach of someone and was pleasantly surprised to look up and see a pretty middle-aged woman standing before him. Uh, hi, how can I help you, greeted Farber. Hi, I'm Jane, uh, Jane Taylor, she said while sticking her hand out. Farber gently grasped her hand with his left hand, never allowing his eyes to leave hers. So, would you like to be a reenactor, Jane, he said with a smile. Jane seemed almost embarrassed, but was glad that the people in the room seemed relatively normal. I was thinking about it, yes, she replied. I'm a history teacher and thought this might be fun. 
Of all the luck in the world, Farber must have corralled most of it to have this woman walk into his reenactors club and be a history teacher to boot. You are? he said with surprise in his voice. I am too, over at Waldwick High. No way. I teach here at Glenrock. How do we not know each other, she said, with the tone that told Farber he might just be onto something. Farber shook his head in wonderment that they'd never met before while Jane continued. I could just be some townsperson or something. It doesn't have to be anything big. I'd just like to participate. Sensing his fortunes might be turning for the good, Farber rose from his chair and guided Jane to a seat farther away from the others. I'm Carl, Carl Farber. So nice to meet you, Jane, he said, then continued. Now listen, I'm quite sure we can find someone for you to portray that's more fitting of your intellect and, he said after a pause, your beauty. Jane smiled warmly at him as they sat down and talked of things only history teachers could find interesting. Chapter 72 By 4 p.m. the meeting had wound down, having gone better than either Teebs or Farber had expected. They stacked chairs and folded tables, mostly in silence, each reflecting on their brush with the past. Farber gathered up his papers and shuffled his way towards the door. With a last glance around, Martin walked out of the door and watched Farber lock it behind him. Well, that went pretty good, huh, Martin? asked Farber. Yeah, they were pretty nice people, answered Teebs. Do you think you'll stick with it, said Farber with a hopeful lilt in his voice. After all, you got Rosita back. Farber, the old annoying Farber, could barely control his laughter as Martin shot him a disgusted look. Hey, hey, I'm kidding, just kidding, sorry man. He apologized, holding his one workable hand up as if to prove the point. You and Jane look pretty chummy. What's up with that? asked Teebs as Farber struggled with the key and his bag of paperwork. She's nice, Martin. Really nice. Not sure I can remember when anyone has been that nice to me, said Farber. Feeling slightly awkward, Teebs had no response, so he simply waited for Farber to continue. I got her number. I think I'll ask her out to dinner. God. It's been so long since I've been on a date, Farber said, mostly to himself. Hey, Martin, he continued, do you think you and your wife would like to double date sometime? Martin's thoughts were lost between the Farber that he grew to know and hate in Lincoln and this new, more vulnerable Farber. Maybe the guy just needed a break or needed a friend, thought Martin. Maybe he was a decent guy just waiting to break out of the asshole shell he'd surrounded himself in. In any event, Martin could count the people he considered friends on the fingers of one hand and still have a few fingers left over. He reasoned that he might as well give Farber a chance in the present because he sure wasn't going to go back to the past. Sure, sometime, Martin offered. Why don't you see how it goes with the two of you first? Farber seemed content with the answer and began to walk toward the car. Placing the bag and papers on the hood, he turned back to Teebs one last time. Martin, I'll see you at the next meeting, okay? I mean, we don't have that anymore, but at least we can have this, huh, buddy? Farber swept his good arm across the front of the barren strip mall to emphasize what he meant by this. Buddy? Is that what he was to Farber now? Just two weeks before, they'd tried to kill each other, and now they were talking like old friends. Teebs gave in and said, sure. I'll see you then, Carl, with a smile. Both men got in their cars and quietly drove away. Martin lost in his thoughts of the past, and Farber lost in his of the future. Chapter 73 
On a bright Saturday morning, Martin raced around the house making preparations for the afternoon's cookout. Lily held down the kitchen while he moved chairs, tables, grills, and coolers for the perfect feng shui effect for his guests. Martin, cried Lily from the kitchen. Are you going to put the steaks on? They'll be here soon. Martin glided back into the kitchen. Never fear, my dear, because Martin Teebs is here. The steaks are all ready to hit the grill as soon as the doorbell rings. Well, that's good, chef of the future, because the meat is all on you, his wife replied. Martin considered some kind of that's-what-she-said joke, but decided that if it didn't go over, it could tamp down the festive mood. Lily looked around happily. Martin had been his usual cheery self for the past few weeks. Because of his little pretend-to-be-an-outlaw gang, she'd met a new friend, Jane, who she enjoyed getting to know. Martin had even made a new friend, a history teacher from town who shared the same silly passion for the Old West that Martin did. Life was seemingly back to almost normal, and the prospects of it staying that way gave Lily hope. With the clock sitting just before 1 p.m., Lily chopped vegetables for the salad as she spoke. I can't wait for Carl and Jane to get here. She's awesome. I just love her, don't you? Yeah, she's great, and she seems like she's good for Farber. I couldn't stand that guy when I met him. Took a long time for me to come around, said Martin. Lily looked puzzled. Long time? You guys just met at your little history thingy a few weeks ago, didn't you? Martin froze like a deer in the headlights for a short moment. Of course, Lily knew nothing about his history with Farber. Of course, she could never know that, for if she did, she would also know about... Yeah, that's what I mean, Lil, he finally offered. That first time, I just didn't think we'd get along, that's all. Lily seemed fine with his answer and resumed her chopping as the doorbell rang. Martin pranced down the hall while announcing, I'll get it, to no one in particular. Opening the door, he saw not Farber, but his work buddy Colin. Marty, good to see you, man. Thanks for the invite, said a very obviously happy Colin. This is Desiree, my... Colin paused as if to get permission to say it. My girlfriend, right, Des? Desiree, if that was her real name, was dressed in bright pink hot pants, a bikini top with a form-fitting tank top stretched over it, and heels that would make a drag queen jealous. If she wasn't a stripper in real life, she could easily play one on TV. The mismatch of the tall, thin, dorky Colin and the exotic sexuality of his girlfriend was almost too much for Martin to take in. Martin offered his hand, saying, Hi, Desiree. Colin has talked a lot about you at work. Wonderful to finally meet you. Desiree offered up her hand and pursed her Botox-inflamed lips. She offered merely, Thank you, in a heavy accent that Martin guessed could be from Ukraine or maybe Russia. As he showed them down the hall, Farber and Jane walked up the stairs, and Martin greeted them as if old friends. Farber craned his neck around, looking intently at Desiree's ass. He gave Martin a chummy wink and scooted around the big man to get a better look. Lily jumped into the greeting festivities, and the entire party moved out into the backyard under their sparkling, sunny sky. Chapter 74 Now settled in the backyard, the three women sat around the table, drinking fruity, festive drinks and getting to know each other better. So, Desiree, where did you meet Colin? You two are such a cute couple, gushed Jane. Ah, we met at work, Desiree said, seemingly remembering the moment they met with a distant smile. Oh, I didn't know you worked with Martin and Colin, interjected Lily. No, silly, Desiree laughed. We met at my work. I'm a dancer. 
Jane cocked her head with interest and asked, Ballet? Desiree, remembering the shower of dollar bills Colin rained on her when they first met, smiled to herself and quietly answered, Something like that, yes. Martin manned the grill, the thick, juicy steaks dropping their juices onto the charcoal below. With each drop, a tiny burst of steam shot up and stung Martin's eyes. Farber slipped up behind him and put his hands on Martin's shoulders. Where'd you get the steaks? Keller's? he inquired. Yeah, Martin replied. They're the best I could find, but it's nothing like a freshly butchered yearling. Martin's misting eyes didn't escape the attention of Farber, who clapped him on the back and said, Hey, buddy, we've got it good here. Beautiful women, cold beer, steaks on the grill, and no one shooting at us. Martin had to agree that not being marked for death was probably a good thing, but the reenacting group hadn't satisfied his need for Lincoln. If anything, it had stoked it. We can't go back there, Martin, Farber continued. Remember? We said that. You remember, right? Farber's firm inquest might have been to protect Martin from being hurt further, but it also served to keep his past secrets in the past, where Farber firmly believed they belonged. Colin walked over to join the men. Hey, Carl, you remember that Billy the Kid acting group too, huh? Asked Colin naively. A reenacting group, that is, corrected Farber. And yes, I actually started it. Colin, with no interest in the past, even his own, didn't have much more to offer to the conversation he started, so Farber jumped in again. Colin, maybe you should join us. We need a John Tunstall. Hell, you'll only have to be there for one meeting before you get killed. Farber roared in laughter at the joke while Colin looked at Martin to see if it was even funny. Martin just shook his head and rolled his eyes at Farber. History's not my thing. Women are, Colin said, motioning toward Desiree, who seemed to be showing the other ladies how to twerk. Farber's eyes opened wide, wondering if Jane was going to add that move to her repertoire later in the day. Well, with that, I'm going to get another beer, announced Colin, and drifted back toward the women. Farber turned his attention back to his friend, who seemed to be struggling to maintain his interest in the present and his composure. It'll be okay, Martin. This is where we belong, amigo. Focus on the here and now, Farber said as Martin looked longingly through the smoke. Well, here and now it's almost time to eat. Keep an eye on the steaks, will you? I need to grab the salad, said Martin as he slowly started shuffling into the house. Farber fished into his pocket and withdrew a small fold of bills. Extracting one dollar, he said, sure will, pard, and I might even see if I can get myself a lap dance from Colin's date. Martin again rolled his eyes and shook his head as he walked into the kitchen. As the party continued and music drifted into the kitchen, Martin was surprised to hear the doorbell ring again. He and Lily hadn't invited anyone else, and rarely would anyone deliver anything on Saturday. Even if they did, Martin had long since stopped ordering books about Billy the Kid, since no book could replace his real-life experience that he'd had with the young man. He walked down the hallway and swung the door open, and then Martin's jaw hit the floor. What the fuck are you doing here? He asked slowly of none other than his pal, William H. Bonney. Teebsy, how you been, you big galoot? chirped Billy in his familiar voice. Martin's brain was short-circuiting. How was the real Billy the Kid standing at his front door in the year 2020? He stammered out the question. How did you... I mean, where did you... Billy jumped in before Martin's head exploded. You remember this, don't you? Billy held out Bachaka's book that Martin had lost in what seemed a lifetime ago. 
Breathing heavily, Martin simply answered, Yeah. Well, Teebsy, you left this in here. Probably a bookmark, I guess, said Billy, handing a yellowed receipt from the dry cleanery to Martin. Now, there weren't New Waldwick, New Jersey in 1878, but I made my way east and figured I'd just find it when I got to whatever the hell year this is, said Billy matter-of-factly, then continuing, and here the hell I am. Martin's head was spinning. Never in a million years did he think he'd ever see Billy again, and never in a billion years did he imagine it would be on his front steps in the year 2020. Listen, Billy, Martin hissed quickly and quietly. Thank you for coming here, but I'm not going back to Lincoln. Not ever. I can't. That part of my life is over. Billy smirked at Martin the way he usually did, as if listening to someone who had no idea what they were talking about. You need to leave, however you got here. No one can see you here. You understand? Martin was almost shouting now at the thought of Lily seeing a long-dead outlaw and inviting him in for a steak. Calm your oversized drawers, Teebsy. I ain't here for you. I'm here because of your boy, said Billy, as something over Martin's shoulder caught his eye. Carl Farber abandoned his post at the grill and came walking down the hallway in search of a bathroom. Like a bullet from a gun, Billy saw him and screamed, "'Cocksucker, I'll kill you!' as he bolted past an astonished Teebs down the hall. Farber looked as if he was seeing a ghost and turned to run just before the young man caught up with him. They rounded the corner and crashed into the guest room with a mighty thud, both men hitting the floor to the sound of breaking glass announcing their entrance." Chapter 75 Martin ran around the corner, arriving at the guest room to see Billy pummeling the older and much bigger man into oblivion. Raining blows down from above, Billy was screaming a string of curses as Farber did his best to cover up. Billy, shouted Teebs, attempting to pull the young man off of Farber. What the hell are you doing? Martin was able to drag Billy far enough away that Farber scooted backwards against the wall like a crab. His eyes glared both fear and anger at the young outlaw. Crazy bastard! What the hell is your problem? he yelled. Martin held Billy's collar, afraid of another attack if he let go. Is this about his book? The one he wrote about you? Martin asked urgently. Billy growled. This ain't about no book. Then pointing straight at Farber. This piece of shit. Whatever Billy was going to say would have to wait as Lily made her presence known at the door. The crashing, cussing, and fighting were clearly audible to the ladies in the backyard, so Lily quietly excused herself to find out what was going on. What's this? What's going on here, Martin? She asked accusingly, figuring that since it was their house, her husband should answer for it. Martin felt the fight go out of Billy with the arrival of a woman, so he released his collar. Getting no answer as the men glared at each other, Lily spoke more urgently. Who are you, young man? staring straight into Billy's blue eyes so it was clear who she was talking to. Ever the gentleman, Billy doffed his hat as he replied, How do, ma'am? I'm William H. Bonney. People call me Billy, though. Throughout Martin's silly fascination with Billy the Kid, she had seen his clothes, his replica guns, and the numerous books that crowded every flat surface in their living room. She'd even seen his ridiculous reenacting group with their patchwork outfits and wooden dummy revolvers. Something told her this was different. She had never seen this person, and something about him seemed... real. With her brain processing what she was seeing, she was only able to squeeze out an incredulous, What? I'm a friend of your husband, ma'am, said Billy through his crooked smile. 
Unsure of what was happening, Lily first glared at Farber, who avoided her eyes, and then at Martin, who defiantly matched them. And I'm here, Billy continued, pointing menacingly at Farber, because this piece of shit raped his girlfriend Rosita. Martin's heart stopped beating for a moment. His blood ran cold, imagining the man he now considered a friend forcing himself on his woman, pregnant with Martin's child. Upon hearing the news, if it was actually true, Lily swallowed hard and looked at Martin to see if his eyes betrayed anything. She'd have to wait, though, until Martin's murderous gaze settled on the simpering Farber, who realized that the genie was out of the lamp. Trying to deflect the attention, and perhaps a bullet, Farber blurted out quickly toward Lily while pointing at her husband, He's got a baby with Rosita. A roar, usually only heard from jungle cats, escaped Lily's throat at the news. What? Seeing that he might just talk his way out of the situation, Farber decided to pile on. Yeah, and he killed a man, too. Shot him right between the eyes. Hell, said Farber, figuring he should fire all of his bullets at once. He shot me, too. How do you think I got this hole in my arm? Martin was sitting at the bottom of a very large pile of shit that had been just dumped on him. Just moments ago, he was the savior, pulling Billy away from his buddy Farber over what was surely a misunderstanding. Now in the space of moments, his life was unraveling before his eyes and his ears. With nothing to lose, and knowing that Farber wouldn't be attending any more Saturday barbecues, Martin pulled the last bullet from his arsenal and aimed it straight at Farber. He wrote a book about you, said Martin, talking to Billy, but pointing to the still quivering Farber, calling you the coward of Lincoln County. Billy's hair trigger snapped again, screaming, Coward my ass, as he lunged at Farber. Grabbing the older man by the collar, he hauled off to break his nose when the room was shocked into submission by Lily Teebs. Enough, she screamed above the din in a voice loud enough to stop everyone in their tracks. The four-way Mexican standoff stood silently eyeing each other, each wondering who would make the next move. Finally, his composure restored, Billy spoke. Well then, he said to Lily, since we's all telling secrets about each other, how's about you share one? you know, to break the tension and all. Billy allowed a cocky smile to permeate his lips, making Lily wonder if he actually knew anything. Looking confused, overwhelmed by what she was seeing, and a bit nervous, Lily glanced from Martin to Billy to Farber. Just then, Jane burst into the room. Her confusion was obvious. Farber was bleeding from the mouth and maybe even from his head. Martin was drenched in sweat and one of the reenactors who she'd never seen was bawling his fists as if ready for another fight. Uh, Lily? Your phone was ringing. It rang a couple times. I thought maybe I should answer it. It's your doctor, said Jane as she slowly handed the phone to her new friend. Lily lifted the phone to her ear. Yes, this is Lily Teeb, she said blankly into it. Uh-huh. What? Said Lily and then paused as if she didn't know what to say. Are you certain? she asked in an emotionless monotone. Without disconnecting the call, her arm dropped to her side, and then the phone dropped to the floor. Her other arm went to her stomach as if she might retch. When she spoke, it was flat, as if something inside her had just died. I'm pregnant. Lily turned and walked zombie-like out of the room. Martin, his mind racing to the use of condoms every single time they made love, tried to understand what was happening. He began to follow her when Billy spoke. Teebsy, what about him? 
as he gestured toward the bloody and battered farber. Nearly catatonic after the events of the past few minutes, Martin reached into his pocket and pulled out a small keyring. He sifted through the keys until he found the one he sought. He opened the nightstand door to reveal a small safe. Without a word, Martin slipped the key in, opened the safe, and let the lid pop up to reveal his 1873 Colt single-action army revolver with a four-and-three-quarter-inch barrel. The gun was loaded with five rounds, and the hammer rested on an empty shell casing. That was the bullet he'd fired into Farber's arm. As he turned to walk out of the room, a giant smile filled Billy's face as Farber screamed and cowered in the corner in horror. Chapter 76 One Year Later Martin sat quietly on the sofa as he flicked the TV on. The house was still as its only remaining inhabitant was about to settle in for some Sunday afternoon football. Eagles versus Giants was always a great rivalry, and Martin knew he could burn through three hours without having to focus on anything else. Just as the opening kickoff sailed through the air, the doorbell rang. Martin, expecting no one, peeked through the peephole and slowly opened the door. On his front step was a kindly-looking older gentleman. He wore a loose pair of blue jeans with a tan jacket and a worn baseball cap. His face was covered with a beard, but Martin somehow felt they had met before. The familiarity nagged at him for a moment. Unable to remember who this person might be, he spoke. Can I help you? The man, whose body language showed he did not want to be perceived as a threat or a door-to-door solicitor, stepped back a bit before speaking in a gentle, reassuring voice. Are you Martin Teebs? Now Martin eyed the man suspiciously unable to shake the feeling they had met, answered, Yes, I am. And who are you? Still smiling, the man fidgeted, but finally spoke. My name is Scott. Scott Skurlock. Pouring a bucket of ice water down Martin's back would have produced the same effect as hearing the last name of one of his old Lincoln County war pals. Skurlock? As in Doc Skurlock, Martin asked fervently hoping that the answer would be no. Yes, sir. He was my great-grandpa, sighed Scott, somehow wishing he no longer had to go through with this. Martin had no idea how to proceed. In his right ear, he heard voluminous cheering, and he suspected that the Giants had done something good for a change. He wanted this kindly man to simply disappear. He wanted him to turn and walk away and never return again. He wanted his doorbell to never have been rung, but Martin knew there had to be a reason for the visit, and his curiosity got the better of him. What can I do for you, Scott, he said formally. Um, Martin, this is for you, said Skurlock, handing him a faded yellow envelope he'd been carrying in his back pocket. Martin looked at the envelope, still sealed, and wondered what was inside. It appeared to be a hundred years old, with deep creases in the many folds it had acquired over the years. In bold block print, On the front side, it said, To be opened only by Martin Teebs of Waldwick, New Jersey. Deliver by September 2021. Martin's eyes were transfixed on the writing as he asked, Where did you get this? From my auntie, answered Scott. Before her, I think from my grandpa. And before that, Scott didn't finish as he didn't want to guess what the envelope's purpose was. The story of it had been loosely handed down among his family, but he didn't want to irritate Martin with hearsay. Anyway, he continued, she made me promise to deliver it before she passed. 
said I needed to get it to you or I'd have to pass it to someone in my family that could. Now sure that the envelope contains something he definitely did not want to read, he asked simply, What is it? Scott's eyes saddened a bit as he spoke. I don't know, Martin. No one's ever opened it. My auntie said that you'd know what to do with it. Martin glanced from the letter to Scott several times. He considered laughing, telling Scott he was only kidding and that he wasn't Martin Teebs, but in the end, he knew his fate was somehow tied to whatever was inside the ancient envelope. Is there something I should know, Martin? asked Scott gently. I mean, how could someone from so long ago know you were going to exist, much less know where you would live? Martin had no answer, so decided to end the conversation. He patted Scott on the shoulder as he spoke. Thanks, Scott. I mean, really, thanks. Scott Skurlock smiled and turned to walk away, his family's sworn duty finally fulfilled. Halfway down the brick walkway, he turned and looked Martin straight in the eyes. Good luck, Martin, he said with a friendly wave of his hand. Martin stood watching him as he slowly walked to the corner and then out of sight. Chapter 77 With the crowd roaring over a Carson Wentz screen pass that the Eagles had turned into the go-ahead touchdown, Martin sat carefully on the sofa and inspected the envelope again. He plucked at it and coaxed the well-worn letter out. With the same deep creases as the envelope, Martin took his time opening it, not wanting to damage whatever message had come for him from the past. It said simply, 887 Kelly Road, Magdalena, New Mexico. Please come by September 17, 1940. Important. Staring at the neat printing for what seemed like hours, Martin finally shuddered and placed the letter back in the envelope. Chapter 78 Magdalena, New Mexico, September 17, 1940 A frail elderly man sat wrapped in a blanket on the rocking chair of his front porch. He and his wife Maria had lived in this small house on the outskirts of Magdalena for almost 60 years. The man was in poor health, coughing fitfully. This man was William H. Bonney, known now by most as Billy Antrim, and on this day he was celebrating his 81st birthday. Doc Skurlock, now almost 90, but in far better health than Billy, exited the house in his undershirt, pants, and a pair of suspenders. Carrying a pipe and wearing a wide-brimmed fedora, the older man was in good spirits. Strong and wiry in his old age, Doc had come from Texas to celebrate his friend's birthday, as he'd done every year since the turn of the century. Hey, kid, happy birthday, said Doc. Billy looked morose. He never enjoyed a birthday after he turned 21. Every one of them seemed to mark some secret torment that the man carried around with him, and as such, birthdays were no reason to celebrate. This should have been over a long time ago, Doc, whispered Billy, his lungs full of fluid, making it difficult to talk or breathe. Doc smiled sadly at his longtime friend, knowing exactly what he meant. If Doc could say something to cheer him up, he would have, but previous birthdays told him that Billy was more waiting to die than wanting to live. With nothing to say between the two men, a delivery truck drove up, and a large, brawny man, who appeared to be in his sixties, stepped out. "'Junior, you made it!' croaked Billy as loudly as he could. The big man bent over and gave Billy a giant, warm hug, genuinely happy to see him. "'Hey, Junior, 
Good to see you, kid. How you been? asked Doc warmly, while in the midst of a strong handshake with the man. Been good, Doc. You? asked Junior. Seeing Doc nod to the affirmative, Junior continued, I don't leave Lincoln much no more. Before the uneasiness that surely would follow could creep into their conversation, the door opened and two children spilled out to greet their grandpa. Papa, the kids shouted, you came for Bisabuelo's birthday party, yay! Junior bent over and scooped up one grandchild in each arm, his eyes alight at seeing his own flesh and blood. Tomas, Ronita, my babies! Junior twirled the kids in a circle until they laughed themselves into a tizzy. He carefully placed them down, and they scooted off the porch to play in the desert. Will you stay the night, Junior? Billy asked hopefully. We've got room. I can't, Pops. I need to get back to Lincoln in case... Junior didn't finish his thought, knowing where the conversation would lead. I just need to get back to Lincoln, he said simply. Billy and Doc looked sadly at each other as Junior looked off into the distance. They knew the pain he'd been in all of his life. Billy secretly wished that somehow Teebs would find a fold in time that would allow him to meet his only son, just once, but that meeting had never happened. He'd have come back by now if he could, Junior, you know that, offered Doc in an attempt to smooth over Junior's bubbling anger. Regrettably, his tactic failed, launching Junior into a tirade they all hoped to avoid. I don't know anything of the sort, Doc. I don't even know my father because he left before I was born and was too much of a goddamn coward to ever come back, yelled Junior, his volume and anger rising at each word. Unable to take any more, Billy collected himself. Easy, Junior, he snapped. That's my friend you're talking about. Don't you forget that. Junior hung his head, having upset the only man who was ever really a father to him. He hated himself in that moment, only slightly less than he hated the memory of Martin Teebs. Shit, I'm sorry, Pops, he said genuinely. I didn't want to cause a fuss on your birthday. Billy nodded and weakly waved his hand to tell Junior it was okay. A man waits 60 years for his father to return. It wears on you, continued Junior sadly, and then added a quiet, 60 years, for no one's benefit but himself. Your father was a good man. Decent man, said Doc, still trying to placate Junior did the best he could under the circumstances. Well, you couldn't prove that by me, Doc, said Junior sternly. Where was your friend when my mama needed him most, huh? Junior's eyes dared either man to come up with a satisfactory explanation, but they could not. With Billy sitting sadly in his chair, Junior folded his arms and looked out to the vast desert surrounding the lonely house. Doc, upset at seeing his friends argue, retreated into the house he rifled through the tiny desk that Maria used to write out her Christmas cards and letters to family in Mexico. Finding a sheet of paper in an envelope, he sat down and carefully wrote out on the envelope in big black letters, to be opened only by Martin Teebs of Waldwick, New Jersey, delivered by September 2021. Chapter 79 Doc rejoined the men on the porch, still not speaking to each other. He went over and gave Billy a rub on his now bald scalp and patted Junior on the shoulder. Everyone seemed sad at the turn their conversation had taken. The quiet between them threatened to stretch to an eternity. I'm going, Pops. I've done enough damage on your birthday. I love you, said Junior, as he leaned over to kiss Billy on top of the head. 
Billy's eyes teared up, but he couldn't find the words to comfort Junior or himself or to convince him to stay. Junior slowly climbed into the truck and drove away, trailing dust behind as he went. Billy looked around, lost. Burdened by the fact that he cheated the Grim Reaper out of sixty more years than he was due, he let his tears fall noiselessly from his eyes before he spoke. I want to go, Doc. I don't want to be here no more, he said in a small and sad voice. Come on, Billy. It's your birthday. We can be happy about that, no? said Doc, trying to cheer the old outlaw out of his funk. No, screamed Billy. I had too many damn birthdays. Sixty more than I was supposed to get. I should be under the dirt in Sumner with Charlie and Tom and whatever the hell Garrett put in that coffin back in 81. Doc carefully tried to talk his friend down, knowing the shouting was no good for his congested lungs. Billy, he said calmly. Billy nothing, railed the old man. Teebs was right. I had no business having this damn book. Billy produced the well-worn and aged copy of Sergio Bachaca's book that Teebs had lost during Brady's murder all those years ago. The book wouldn't be written for another 60 years or so. The book that detailed every event of his life right up until the time that Pat Garrett was supposed to have gunned him down near midnight in Fort Sumner on 14 July 1881. That book. That book that allowed him to escape his fate. Billy hated the book, and he hated himself for reading it. Surely he would have known when Bowdry, Folliard, McSween, and others would die. Surely he could have saved them all. But just as surely, he didn't. Billy took a front row seat to history and watched his friends being slaughtered when he could have stopped every bit of it. Why didn't he? That thought tormented him every single September 17th thereafter. Each birthday was a reminder that his friends were dead, he was not, and he deserved to be with them. Billy weakly threw the book on the porch while saying, I wish to hell I would have given it back to him, and then more softly, I wish to hell I was dead where I belong, Doc. If Doc heard Billy's final wish, he didn't betray it, his eyes transfixed as a dusty pickup truck rolled to a stop in front of the porch. Whoever was in the back jumped out and thanked the driver as the truck pulled away. As the dust cleared, Doc couldn't restrain himself. Son of a bitch. Martin Teeb squinted and walked slowly toward the porch, unsure of who he was here to see and why he was here to see them. As he reached the steps, he sighted a sickly old man whose familiar blue eyes still pierced him when they connected. Billy? Billy, is that you? asked Martin incredulously. Billy's eyes opened wide, but he could not find any words. Martin looked to his left and saw a man who was the spitting image of the Scott Scurlock who had been on his porch just a few days earlier. Jesus Christ, Doc, is that you? said the amazed time traveler. Doc smiled warmly, extending his hand and saying, You got my letter, huh, Teebs? Martin reached into his back pocket to produce the worn letter that Doc had written only minutes ago. Doc smiled outwardly, but sighed heavily on the inside, knowing the letter didn't serve its intended purpose. Billy's lip began to quiver, bracing himself to greet his old friend. Oh, shit. I think I died and gone to hell, laughed Billy through his pain. Teebsy, my friend. What are you doing here? Doc sent me a message, replied Martin. Billy looked thankfully at Doc and began to cry again. I'm sorry about this, Teebs. About all of it, he said through his tears. 
Sensing that Billy was very ill and not wanting to upset his friend, Martin gently replied, Billy, don't. It's okay. Okay, nothing. I've been waiting 60 years to say this. I was wrong. I had no business keeping that damned book. No man should know his future, so he don't try to change it, said Billy as he descended into a severe coughing fit. It doesn't matter now, Billy, said Teebs, hoping he could calm his friend. Billy stopped coughing, but had no more energy to yell. It matters to me, Teebsy. I didn't do no good except for myself with that thing. I just sit and watched everyone else die. It's a terrible thing knowing your own fate, he said between his shallow breaths. Billy began to sob loudly as Martin pulled up a stool next to him. He cradled the withering old man in his arms as he began to cry too. Billy's breathing began to slow and his face twitched. Slowly rocking him, Martin could feel the life slipping away from the boy bandit. Billy opened his eyes and croaked. I love you, Teebsy. Always did. I'm so sorry, my friend. Martin's tears poured from his eyes like New Mexico's summer monsoon rain, staining the blanket that held the best friend he'd ever had in life as he whispered into Billy's ear, I love you too, Billy. Billy coughed sharply, his body going rigid. His eyes continued to drain as Martin felt the last bit of life drift from his friend. Going limp, Billy's sharp blue eyes glassed over and the light behind them simply went out. Billy the Kid was dead. He's gone? asked Teebs of Doc, unsure of what to do. Yeah, said Doc. Good life, though. He had a good life. Doc walked over and rubbed his hand on Billy's still warm head. He gently reached down and closed his eyes as Martin still rocked slightly back and forth. I'm sorry too, Teebs, said Doc contemplatively as he lit his pipe. For what? Martin asked. For my message. It got there too late, said Doc, his eyes averted from what he knew he must tell Martin. Martin looked confused. He looked at his friend Billy's lifeless body in his arms. He assumed he'd been summoned here to say goodbye. He didn't yet understand Doc's message was meant to have him say hello. Your boy was just here, said Doc, as he stared over the vast plains. Left just before you arrived. Been waiting 60 years to meet his daddy. If I'd have been a little quicker, you'd have finally met him. Martin's lip quivered and his eyes stung with the tears of a man who has lost everything. All he could manage by way of response was a simple, What? Doc inhaled deeply from his pipe and just shook his head. Martin's head rolled back against the wall as his tears ran unabated to the ground. His son, his one and only, had been there and Martin had missed him. He sobbed loudly and uncontrollably as he hung his head in sorrow. I hope to hell you find a way to meet that boy just once before he's gone, Teebs. That would be some sight. Wish I could be there to see what you'd say to each other, said Doc. I'm sure it'd be something beautiful. Martin buried his head in his hands as 140 years of love, loss, death, friendship, and hardship poured out of him. His two crazy lives flashed before his mind's eye. He was alone, with no one and with nothing. He'd lost everything he'd ever known or loved and missed out on loving the one thing he wanted more than anything in the world. The only flesh and blood that he had left on this planet had gone and Martin knew he could not follow. 
The letter brought him here. He had no way to get there. If Martin Teebs had decided to curl up and die next to his famous outlaw friend, no one would have blamed him. As it was, there wasn't even anyone left enough to care to stop him. Doc dragged deeply on his pipe and exhaled, the smoke curling off the porch and toward the sky. It swirled in the air, joining the clouds in a circle that would remain unbroken and eternal. Just like time. The End Hi, I'm back to Billy author Michael Anthony Judasissi, and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the strange, twisted tale of Martin Teebs. If you enjoyed it, you'll want to catch up on the rest of the Back to Billy series, which you can find at www.mankindpro.com.